Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It's Thursday, February 8th. Derek Van Riper, Eno Saris here with you. On this episode, we are going to talk about some structural and strategy-based things for 2024 Fantasy Baseball League. So this is a great episode, whether you are playing for the first time or you're a seasoned player. We're going to get into some kind of unique 2024 things. We're going to pull all the way back and explain some of the things we say that might be a little bit jargony or insiderish as we uh, we go through the draft season, hopefully making it a little easier, a little more accessible for anybody and everybody out there who wants to play more fantasy baseball or just play some fantasy baseball for the very first time. Yeah, uh, we've had some requests to go through the different types of games that are out there. We've had some listeners that were listening for baseball reasons who were intrigued by fantasy and jumping in for the first time. And then for anybody uh, who does play these, uh, we should be able to add some idea of strategies and maybe even some advanced strategies. Um, so hopefully it'll be appealing to uh, all different kinds of people. So this was actually inspired, I think, by listener Fred, who kind of made this initial request, not the only person who's ever made the request, but suggested it could be put together as one episode. So we're giving it a shot. We'll see. We'll see what we get at the end of this. We'll call it the 101, laying the groundwork, preparing for a great 2024 fantasy baseball season. I think the the entry point is just how do you want to play? Like How deep do you want to go? If you haven't played before, maybe you've played in a casual league with friends, what's that next sort of step? And Obviously, we talk about different size leagues, right? Usually, a league has about 10 teams in it at the smaller end. You could have as many as 20 or 24 or even 30 for some super deep, ultra-mega dynasty league type things. Most leagues, the vast majority of leagues, are between 10 and 15 teams. So, just kind of finding the finding the way the player pool fits your knowledge and interest level in doing research. I think that's kind of finding the sweet spot for a league size, right? Because... You have mixed leagues, you have mono leagues, which are AL or NL only. Those are super deep if you want to really dig into it. But if you're someone who watches a ton of AL teams, like maybe your favorite team plays in the AL, and you know that side of the player pool really well, that could be a really good fit too. I'm just curious what you prefer as your optimal format. Like, What is your perfect league if you were the commissioner and you're only playing in one league in a season, even though I know you play in like a dozen every year? I like uh, deeper. One of the reasons that I like deeper is that you can identify an undervalued player that you think is going to get more playing time. And just that alone is a big win. You don't have to identify a breakout star or uh, someone in a peak season. Like you can find a fourth outfielder that plays a little bit more than most fourth outfielders. You know? <laughs> and I don't know, I find that kind of compelling. When you go all the way to the deepest, though, I do have a bit of a problem. So I'm in a 30-team basketball league, and I don't know if this is unique to basketball. What I find is that transactions grind to a halt. And I see this even in my 20-team league to some extent, which is people are just afraid to lose an asset in a team that large, in a, in a league that large, because there's just no real picking up anything off the wire. And when there's just really nothing on the wire, and that can happen in AL only, uh, but that can also happen, it, it really is really the strongest I've ever seen in this 30-team basketball league. If I 
you know, list the waiver wire acquisitions we've had in the two years we played this league, you wouldn't know, probably nobody would know a single one of these players. Um, and so unless there's some real Raptors fans out there who know who Jonte Porter is, like that's been our biggest acquisition of the last two years on the wire. So that gets a little bit too deep. Um, so there is too deep for me. But on the very shallow end, I get frustrated uh, in a slightly different way where you know, even transactions even become difficult because, you know, there's there's sort of no point sometimes. You're just like, all these players are good. And why would I give you one good player for your three good players? Which is like, everybody wants to do that in like a 10-team league, you know? <laughs> like, why would I give you one excellent player for your three okay to good players, you know? And so you start to see a lot of the same trade offers that way. But generally, I like Dynasty and I like slightly deeper Dynasty because I kind of like to play along with the GMs and, you know, have this idea of I'm building a team and I'm thinking about the future and I'm thinking about the present and I have to balance all these different things. Yeah, so that's a huge choice, too. Do you want to play redraft, start the player pool from scratch every year or try and get into something where you have keeper elements or even a Dynasty situation where everybody gets kept, nearly everybody, and the draft is very small after the first year, it might be a five round draft that you have because 40 players are on the roster, 35 get kept, and then you've got five rounds to fill it back out. That's a really unique challenge in and of itself. As far as the shadow leagues go, I think if you're playing in a league with some friends and you can customize the roster spots, the one way you can take a smaller group of teams and make the league more challenging is just add some roster spots, right? I think if you play in a league that has one catcher, one of everything else around the infield, no corner, no middle, three outfielders and a utility, that doesn't push you very deep into the player pool. But if you start to make it look more like what we talk about when we talk about like NFBC leagues where there's two catchers, there's a corner and a middle infielder in addition to all the other individual infield spots, there's the five outfielders, that starts to push you further into the player pool. A slightly deeper bench, right? It rewards you for drafting and finding the best players. It's not as easy to go to the waiver wire and find a good player to find a 20 home run bat or a 20 steel player or a quality starting pitcher. So it really depends on how difficult you want the league to be. And I think if you're the commissioner of the league, or at least you, if you have the ear of the commissioner of the league, you have to understand what everybody else in the league actually wants, right? Mm -hmm. If you're playing with a group of friends or group of coworkers, it might be a little bit different than the actual goals of a highly competitive group of people that might want to play for higher stakes or even just play for some bigger bragging rights because they're consuming podcasts year-round. They're consuming content year-round. They're in love with prospect lists and trying to find the next great player. So I think that's a huge part of figuring out like what type of league you want to sign up for or what type of league you actually want to build. Yeah, yeah. I was in a, in a league with... Uh, Dan Rosenheck, the economist at the Economist, and um, you could trade players. You could rent players, so could I could trade players? you a full season of. I think we did something where we had some sort of speedster. Like I could trade you a full season of Estuary Ruiz for like two and a half months of Mike Trout, and that was one of the worst experiences I've ever had. <laughs> I do not want to do, I did I just, that was so deep and so intense that I just, you have to not only kind of have a model for player value, but you have to have a model for player value on like the weekly basis. So you can be like, what is like 
three weeks of a story where he's worth in like you know, it's like yeah. we we ended up finishing like fourth or something and it wasn't terrible but uh it was i mean it was super super deep and super active and i was like i have 15 other leagues like i cannot be spending people were like really did have models to like oh like to really parse the player value down to you know daily chunks that they could add up and oh yeah no 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 i'm not i won't give you three weeks of them. i'll give you two and a half weeks like what yeah <laughs> okay <laughs> thankfully that's not how most people play uh, i don't think i would enjoy a format like that <laughs> it was so intense so what i think that on like a more relatable level for most people what that is is in a way a streaming league and so you do have to think about streaming when you're setting up your 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 league because you know do you do you think that everybody in the league will be on the waiver wire every day and and if not, do you think like a couple people will be, and then the rest won't be, and then will those couple people just win the league because they are adding players every day, you know? And if you have a, a set of casual, more casual players that don't want to be on the waiver wire every day for a hundred and sixty-two game season, uh, then you have to put in things like uh, innings minimum. Um, which uh, keeps people from basically doing full reliever strategy or an innings maximum to keep people from streaming pitchers every day. Um, You can change the number of lineup slots. So like if you have SPs and RPs, one thing that's interesting though, is if you try to limit streaming by let's say having two SP slots and three RP or three SP slots, starting pitcher slots and three relief pitcher slots, then people will find uh, starters with relief pitcher designation that they can uh, sneak more starts in. Um, and the opposite is true. If you only limit the amount of relievers a team have, we will at some point, maybe today, uh, talk about uh, relievers that have starting pitcher designation <laughs> so that uh, you can sneak more relievers in your SP slot. So... Um, you know, that's a, that's a consideration is to think about how active your people are going to be and how active you, everybody wants to be and, uh, kind of maybe restrain the, the, the couple people that you have your eye on. You're like, you are just going to do everything every day that you can. I need to think about you when I'm making the rules. <laughs> right. Yeah. The, the availability of the people managing teams in your league and their attention level, yeah. I think is really important. I think you can obviously you can go to the weekly cadence for both the pickups and for moves. You could do twice weekly for those things. You also have to decide, do you want moves to be first come first serve available players in the waiver wire? Is it as simple as first person to go get the player and add them, drop somebody else, they get them. Do you want a waiver system or do you want to do a free agent auction budget where everybody has a separate budget for those pickups? Usually it's $100 or $1,000 and you have to spend a little bit of that money every single time that you want to add somebody. I think if you have people who are really into the whole process, then I think fab is the most fair and equitable way to go ahead and, and distribute players in season. But I also realize if you have a lot of first time players, that might not be the easiest way to do it. Fortunately, there are football leagues that do it. I think that's the thing you have to think about, too. Have the people, people in your league played fantasy football before? Football, have they played yeah. with those rules? I found, kind of using football as another example, my home league in fantasy football, like 10 years ago, finally switched from snake draft to an auction. And they never wanted to go back. And I think that's the case for a lot of people 
snake they only draft, play in one picking, or two leagues. You know, one person, one person, one person, one person, you know, and then it, it, why it's called snake is it kind of goes, you go one through 14 or one through 10 and then 10 picks again and you go 10 through one. So it's right. like a snake, whereas auction is everyone has a bunch of money and ha- can buy whoever they want. And you know, the snake draft is still the more common format in fantasy I think baseball. Auctions a little bit harder. You have to have values. Mm-hmm. You have to have an idea of how auctions work. And you know, I think that's you. Sh- if you're doing going for a first time league, like I would, I would just do a snake draft the first time. Yeah, I think the pace is a little more comfortable. You know, it's like a minute per pick usually. Obviously, that can be customized on a lot of different sites as opposed to every player being on the block and a continuous timer to get a bid in running. That's got, that's got a lot more on it as far as like pressure goes for each person. So my 11-year-old wants a, a league this year. What do you think is the absolute sort of easiest entry point for a bunch of 10 and 11-year-olds? I would, I would think, I think head-to-head will keep their attention longer. Yep. You know, I bet you weekly lineups is better. Yes, I think you'd start with weekly. Like 11-year-olds are not going to remember to set their lineup every night. Probably not. Yeah, so weekly Not the whole lineups. league, and then, you, then you're just kind of rewarding the kids that get glued to it the most, which probably makes it less fun for the kids that aren't as into it. How about waiver pickups? Maybe they just happen once a week, but yeah, Sunday nights, and then you have to set your lineup by Monday? I think so. By Monday game time? Yeah. Or first game of the week, Monday, Tuesday. I mean, there's mm-hmm. some flexibility with that. Do you think about a kid's schedule, though? Like, if, it's, if it goes through Sunday, then they go to school all day Monday. You know? Yeah, run the transaction Saturday and have them make lineup changes on Sunday. It's a little yeah. different. but you, or, or do it, you know, on the weekend, do it Friday into Saturday. Like, it doesn't have to be perfect. I think that's the funny thing is that we, we talk a lot on our show about the NFBC-style leagues, right? That's a high-stakes contest that a very small percentage of fantasy baseball players plays. It's super competitive. We love playing it. It's a great format, but it's not very approachable at first. So you just have to like think kind of outside of, of those usual those yeah, the usual things. Who play it don't make it seem very approachable. <laughs> 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 and then just uh, there's a there's a there's a a fee for every one of the leagues. So you really have to like be willing to lose your money. Um, but the nice thing about it is if you just if you're just looking at the NFBC, like what they have. So, you know, they, they range from fifty dollar entry fees, I believe. Uh, what are those called? Uh, they're called like fifties or something. They have a lobby where you can look at all the different contests they have. NFBC fifties are the lowest entry point that they offer. It's a twelve team league. And there's actually an overall competition that is made up of all the NFBC 50 leagues. So you're playing against the 11 other people in your league plus everybody else in all the other leagues, which is common for the NFBC. It's a league that goes up against other leagues. So how you score against possibly hundreds or even thousands of other entries actually determines your prizes even beyond what happens against the rest of your individual league. Um, So that one's like, you know, 50 bucks to get in, 12 teams, 50 rounds. That's a draft and hold. So that's the other thing you have to keep in mind too when you start looking at different public leagues. It seems like monetarily, you're like, oh, well, that's not, th- that That seems like a, a doable number. Right? Mm-hmm. But then, you know, you have to think about, you have to have the time to do a 50-round draft. Either sit down and do it for, what, two, three hours? Sometimes there's slow drafts, too. And then there's a slow draft, which is more doable in terms of, like, you just have to, you know, watch your phone and, uh, <laughs> you know, you have, like, an hour or two hours to pick uh once you're notified but that that ends up being a lot of phone jockeying like when i'm in a draft like that i'm looking at my phone a lot 
Um, yeah. So, you know, you might want to just sit down and do it. But then you have to think like you, you're, you, it seems entry level, but it's 50 rounds. So, and you have to buy, you don't have the opportunity to buy anybody. Draft and hold means you're not picking up anybody during the season, which is easier during the season. You, you don't have to like think about pickups. All you have to do is set your lineup once a week, and that makes it sort of easy. But you have to think at the beginning of the season about all the different players you might want to have, you know. And so, you know, just a little bit of draft and hold strategy here. I've got um, my team here that I drafted uh, early in the season. Um, and uh, so this is, you, you see here, uh, like I've got four catchers. Uh, Yiner Diaz, Patrick Bailey, Christian Betancourt, and Christian Vasquez. The reason I did uh, four was that I thought Patrick Bailey was an iffy second one. Um, and so I wanted to have two shots at maybe a better second catcher. You can you can get by with three catchers. So if you're if you're doing this, you three or four catchers. That's a thing that you want to do. Um, and then I have four first basemen: Vladimir Guerrero, Paul Goldschmidt, Ailey Harris Montero, and Ryan Noda. Um, you can have uh, three bodies, but you need to have four eligibilities. Um, first base is one place that there's not a lot of people who have dual eligibility. So I just have four first basemen. But if you look then at my second baseman, I have five second base uh, bodies. Haseon Kim, Tyro Estrada, Jeff McNeil, Brendan Rodgers, and Jordan Diaz. But Haseon Kim is third base eligible, and Jeff McNeil is outfield eligible, and Tyro Estrada is uh, shortstop eligible. So my general rule is you want to have three bodies per infield position, but four eligibilities. So when you look at my shortstop, I have Carlos Correa and Marco Luciano. That looks like a problem, except I have Carlos Correa, Marco Luciano, Haseon Kim, and Tyro Estrada. So I still have four bodies. At third, I have Matt Chapman, Brett Beatty, Justin Henry Malloy, three bodies, but Haseon Kim counts and Jordan Diaz counts as a third baseman. So my general rule of thumb is you want to have at least three catchers. You want to have at least three bodies per infield position. Um, and you want to have four eligibilities per infield position. And you want to have, you know, I think at least nine outfielder bodies, maybe 10 uh, with some extra eligibilities in the outfield. Um, so that's just a, some benchmarks that you want to hit. Um, within that, there's some advanced strategy, which is I think that you want to have a little bit of a mix in your backup bodies between upside and just everyday playing. So when you look at something like um, my f my third base situation, Matt Chapman, Haseon Kim, Brett Beatty, and Justin Henry Malloy, what I have is in Kim and Chapman, guys, I think are going to play every day. Those are bodies that will play every day. That's a floor. Brett Beatty is an interesting bit of upside where I think he's going to play every day. Justin Henry Malloy is a shot in the dark. You don't want to have two shots in the dark at one position. I was thinking that Elu Harris Montero was going to be the first baseman in Colorado. It, I'm okay with that now that I have Ryan Noda. At least I Montero becomes a guy who's a shot in the dark. Maybe I'll be using him for a week at a time when somebody is hurt. You know, in Colorado, Chris Bryant's probably going to get hurt at some point. I'm going to have Montero in because he's got seven, you know, six games in Colorado. But you know, just generally a mix of upside and just a solid body you can't you can't like in my outfield at the back end i've got jesus sanchez dylan carlson dylan cruz and dominic canzone like cruz is just in there to be like hey yolo like 
maybe he makes it. Maybe he plays every day. Maybe he's awesome. You know, maybe he makes it by the second half. Uh, but Jesus Sanchez and Dylan Carlson are there because worst case scenario, they're playing, I think. So, you know, you have that mix between upside and uh, just actual playing time in your backup situation. You want to buy playing time, but you also need to take these shots at, you know, capturing something that will be way better than its draft cost. If Dylan Cruz plays half a season and gives me 15 homers and 15 stolen bases with the 280 average, like that'll be worth way more than what I what I got him for. And he'll be my starter in the whole second half. Yeah, so that's sort of core strategy for a draft and hold league. And if you're listening, you're like, I've barely heard of some of these players. That's why that format can be really difficult, even yeah. though the price point starts off really low. So you have to think about it more of how well do you do the player pool? How comfortable are you trying to project playing time for guys that haven't even shown up in the big leagues yet? And yeah. are you interested in trying to figure out who's going to pick up extra position eligibilities along the way, right? It's an advanced sort of set of, of questions to, to answer. It's very fun if you've played before and feel like you want to be challenged a little bit, but you also want to take like one small step in as, a, as opposed to spending you know, three times that entry fee, right? They have draft champions leagues. Those are $150 entries typically, and they're 15 teams instead of 12. So 15 times 50 for your player pool instead of 12 times 50. So you have to go even deeper in terms of what you're looking at. And the same principles apply just in terms of how much depth you want to have, how much coverage you need, the types of guys who play versus guys that could pop if they get the opportunity. You have to manage injury risk very carefully in a league like this. You compare that and contrast that to the 10 team league that a lot of people start with where you can take a lot of chances and a lot of risk and your knowledge of the player pool doesn't be that deep. It's a huge difference in what you're playing, right? Totally different ball game entirely. The, if you want to play draft and holes, but not at NFC, um, for whatever reason, uh, fan tracks, I think has some good draft and holds. Yep. Fan tracks. does a lot of good paid leagues where you can see pretty easily when you sign up beyond draft and hold, you can see, uh, what are the payouts? how much of the prize pool comes back. All of these sites that have paid leagues do have costs. It's expensive to have stats. You need programmers to build a game. So like you, you need to lobby local governments. <laughs> yeah, right. And you got to pay licensing fees. NFBC has to pay those for pretty much most of the states they play in. So that, that gets expensive as well. So if you're wondering, hey, you know, we're paying this much in, we're only getting 85, 87, 88% back. That's why there are a lot of administrative costs to actually running something like this. You have to be kind of mindful of that. That's something that's different than playing with your friends where everyone throws in 25 bucks, 50 bucks, whatever you play for, and it all gets paid back. Maybe less the commissioner service fee, right? So if you decide you want to have a league on CBS, you're going to pay for that. If you want to run a free league, there are options for that too. You can play on Yahoo. You can play on ESPN. Those are less flexible in terms of just how many things you can do, but they do have plenty of options, right? I mean, you still have some leagues that I think play on, on Yahoo, don't you? What I like about Yahoo is just um, it's uh, it's where I started. I think it's just super easy in terms of layout and use. And like, I, I think it's super intuitive, you know? So Yahoo, I think is actually a, a pretty good place to start. But the problem with Yahoo is that like, you're either playing with a lot of people who don't know, or you have to come up with your settings with your friends that you do know. And if you do want to share money then you're somebody's doing the venmo or or, or paypal <laughs> jockeying uh there is a site called league safe 
that will take a little bit out of your player pool, less than sort of NFC, keep the money for the year, and then do payouts. So you can you can do like League Safe plus Yahoo. Uh, CBS I like because it's very customizable. So I have a 20-team keeper league I talk about sometimes, Devil's Rejects. We are allowed to, have, uh, to keep players that are not in uh, baseball yet. So like you can I, like uh, Braden Montgomery, who just transferred from Stanford to Texas A&M, um, is kept by one of the players in our league. It was just offered to me in that uh, in that uh, deal I was talking about the other day for Cody Bellinger. Um, and so you can actually just have a placeholder, whereas in Yahoo, it's kind of harder to like keep someone like Braden Montgomery. You have to have like a, a separate Google Doc somewhere where you're keeping your minor league players and stuff. CBS has more customizability in that way i uh haven't played on espn in a while i can't i it never really hit a mark for me that was either uh as usable as yahoo or as customizable as cbs so it was mm-hmm. kind of in this kind of in between place where it was annoying most of the time so uh, <laughs> i i don't have the greatest uh, i didn't have the greatest experience at espn i kind of got off of it eventually um, and I would recommend either Yahoo or CBS uh, for that. Um, back to NFC, if you're talking about like the one thing I like is you kind of you want to have some skin in the game, and you can do this without finding a bunch of people or going on leader on on message boards trying to find people to put a league together. You can just go to NFC, and they're there in the lobby. Uh, what's another sort of entry level one? Uh, where what is the uh, amount of money you have to put down for a satellite? Because I think satellites are. It can be 12 or 15 team leagues, but they're not draft and hold, so they don't go all the way down. They're basically more 25-round drafts um, where then you have to buy, you have free agency, and you have to you know do weekly lineups, and it, it mimics their biggest uh, games, but it's, it's, it's a smaller entry fee. What's their entry fee for a satellite? They start down at 125. They go up to, I think, at least... 500 but yeah it's a little more approachable uh the difference would be satellites not connected to a bunch of other leagues right we're talking about the overall component of that nfbc 50 you can't win a big overall prize yeah right you're playing against 11 other people and then you're playing against every other group of 12 in that format satellites are just standalone leagues so that's a very straightforward way to play you could have the in-season pickups you can kind of learn the game that way without being in a position to uh, maybe much money. <laughs> up against some of the absolute sharpest players out there. It's, uh-huh. a, it's a great next step. I mean, you, you can do this. So you can do this at NFBC. You can do it at fan tracks as well. They've got standalone leagues. They have best balls as well. You see best ball thrown out there. There's uh, That's a league where you draft and you don't even make lineup changes. You do nothing in season. The, the best lineup you have, you. every single lineup period gets played and that's it. And that's got a whole different set of things that you're trying to do, similar to draft and hold in some ways, but unique in that you have to uh, kind of structure your roster a little bit differently. We'll, we'll kind of save that because that's a this very niche sort of format that people are still getting into. But you could also play that on a place like Underdog. And I think Underdog is really interesting if you're thinking about best ball for the first time because they have a slightly smaller roster. Um, and they use a few different like position, like multi-position Isn't it groups. just like outfield, infield? Pitcher and utility, yeah. They, they just they narrow it down a lot. It's a points-based league instead of a roto league. Um, we didn't really talk about that up top. A lot of leagues are rotisserie leagues in fantasy baseball where it's usually five hitting categories and five pitching categories. Your placement in the standings is determined by where you are in each individual category. So if you're in a 12-team league, you have the most home runs in the league to that point in the season. 
you get 12 points in home runs. If you're last in the category, you get one point. And then every spot in between gets an equal number of points. So tally up all the points for all the categories. That's your standings for a rotisserie league. Points is much more like fantasy football, right? A home run has a value. A stolen base has a value. Every kind of thing that happens has a value, some positive, few negative. Tally it all up. Final numbers, your total points, sort by total points. That's the best team in the league. The nice thing about points leagues is in some ways it can approximate what's happening in the real game more or better because you can assign points based like walks will have a point, whereas they may not have a point in a five by five category that only values home runs, stolen bases, runs, RBI, you know, and batting average. So um, you can you can approximate the big league value better. One thing I don't like about it is if you're in a league with trading and you have points, I think that people get hyper fixated on the points and um, it's very hard to make trades because people are like, well, why would I trade this guy who has more points for your guy who has fewer points? Or, you know, like, why are you offering me this guy with more points for fewer? You know what I mean? Like it, players end up having just like one number associated with them. Um, and it seems to me like people can kind of model out the system and figure out a couple ways to win. And it doesn't, uh, it doesn't allow for like categorical, uh, needs based trading, which I like, which is, I have too many homers. You have too many stolen bases. We have a match, you know, <laughs> it's always like, well, my guy's going to score more points in the future and your guy's going to score, you know, or my guy's going to score fewer points in the future. And like, I model this out better than you. And so, you know, it's like. I don't know. I, I For some reason, I don't like points leagues as much. I like categories. I think it leads to more interesting back and forth between between managers, needs-based trading sort of idea. Yeah, I haven't played in points leagues in a long time. I don't enjoy them as much as I enjoy Roto. I think the reason why I enjoy a rotisserie league more is it generally forces you to have a more balanced roster. You see, you hear uh, people talking about punting a category. That's just basically saying, I'm not worried about saves. I'm not worried about steals. It's usually one of those two categories. Way easier in a points league when you can just get a reliever that gets points without saves, you know? It's kind of baked into a points league. In a roto league, if you do that, it's a very risky strategy, and it really limits your overall ceiling. Sometimes it works, and sometimes it makes sense just based on something that's happened on draft day, or maybe you lose the deeper your league someone is, to an the injury. more it makes sense to punt, uh, punt a category. Right, but generally, you want to try and be competitive in every category in a rotisserie league, and I, I like that challenge. I just think that that's kind of how my brain works, and um, you can tweak the categories. If you don't like batting average, you can use OBP. If you don't like wins, you can use innings pitched. You can make it bigger. You could have six hitting categories and six pitching categories. You could go 10 by 10 if you really want to. I don't play that way. Some people love it. They have their reasons. When you start having tons of categories, it almost gets more like a points league where you kind of, it just blurs. And you're like, I just need good players. I can't, I can't, I, what am I doing here? I got to, I'm in one league, uh, the pitchfork league that I talk about sometimes where we have like um, OBP and slugging, but also K's by the batter. Um, and it's, I think it's like nine by nine. So it's like nine categories in each. And it's so hard to build a good team, which I guess that's that's cool. I like that. I like it that it makes it harder because you can't like think about how hard it is to get stolen bases with a really good OBP and slugging. Mm -hmm. You know, like and so if you do put a guy like Ruiz on that team, you really take a big step forward. We've talked a lot about how to use a guy like Historia Ruiz on this podcast, but like in that league, it's very hard to use him. Plus, yeah. that league is both head-to-head -head 
and uh, Roto. And in head-to-head, you're just thinking about, how do I win this week? And in rotisserie, you're, how do I win the year? And so you could have like a Ruiz on your bench. It's like, I need to win stolen bases this, this, this week. And you could win the week and be worse for the year by playing that player. <laughs> so uh, there's lots of different ways that you can you can play around with your, your settings. Each, each time you do it, you have to try to think of the unintended con- consequences if you're, uh, you know, if you're a, a commissioner that's about to put the league together and you're thinking about these things. Each, each time you do something, you have to think about, you have to think about that most active player in your league, the least active player in your league, like what, what kind of workarounds, what kind of cheat, like not cheats, but what kind of workarounds like people could do with the different settings you're putting into place. I would try, if you could, to look back at a previous season or even more than one previous season and look at the rules you had versus the rules you're thinking about implementing and just see what changes in the valuations of players. Who ends up moving up? Who moves down? Does it flatten things in a way that makes it uh, viable to use different strategies? Like, What did those changes actually do based on some of the recent seasons? I think that will give you a better idea of the categories you might actually want to add to your league as opposed to just getting a little click happy when you've got the commish tools and uh, going to the 8x8, 9x9, 10x10 range. I feel like it's not necessarily something I, I want to do, so I, I've never explored it in detail, at least not recently. I think the first time I played Roto way back in like early 2000s in college, it was something like a 9x9 league, and it was just it was too much. Because <laughs> yeah. there were too many categories that were irrelevant relative to the others. They didn't correlate well enough, and that that made it pretty strange or, or just ones that make it just harder. Like in, when we have K's by batter in this league, it's like, there are so many players that have good OBP, good slugging might steal some bases, hit some homers. And you're like, but they strike out too much, <laughs> you know? And you're just like, I can't play that guy. You know, I can't play a 30% strikeout guy in that league. Unless I have like two 10% strikeout guys. The other sort of logistical question, where you prefer to play and, and how you prefer to play, it does come back to stakes, right? We kind of talked about some of the lower entry options that they have both at the NFBC and even at Fantrax. You can start much lower. I don't know if I mentioned it. Underdog's best ball stuff starts at like seven or eight bucks, much, much lower than the others. So and very, the, the, very approachable. And the rounds are really short, right? Like you're almost doing, like you're just picking 10 players or 15 players or something, isn't it? 20 players. And I want to say it's a smaller number of teams than some of the other best ball formats too. So 20, the drafts are 20 quick. Players and like you're only starting 10 or something yeah moves pretty fast now the the higher stake stuff right i mean I, for me i think you could reasonably say that a 350 dollars entry fee is actually higher stakes it's not the highest stakes but for a lot of people 350 is more than they've ever played for a for. long time that was the yeah, that was the highest i'd ever done something like that. yeah and, and that gets you into something like the online championship over at the nfbc that's a 12 team league 30 round draft five by five roto with moves you got your individual league prizes which come in at like 1400 i think big big prize pool for the overall contest playing against everybody else who also is in the online championship it's a fun way to take that that kind of second step towards playing in the higher higher stakes i think it's similar to a lot of the leagues people play in before they go into high stakes like a lot of people play 10 and 12 team leagues we learned that from our, our listener survey last year if you make the leap all the way up to something like the main event which is 15 teams and a $1,750 entry fee, you are in a completely different place than what you were in in your home league in most instances. So you really have to be careful about your league selection, not just from 
the entry fee perspective, but also just from the league structure perspective. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just as an example of, you know, what you can do to be prepared for each of these levels. I think if you're doing a satellite league um, and you just go in with the auction calculator values and a general sense of who you like, and you've just listened to, you know, this pod and you have some names, um, you're, you're that's pretty fully prepared. I think you could win a league like that. Um, if you're starting to go up to, um, you know, uh, more of the uh, $400 level, um, I think you'd want to have a better sense of um, each each team's uh, depth charts and some idea of, um, you know, some players that were risky for losing their jobs and some players that were risky, like could win jobs, um, have a have a good sense of like, you know, you, you might have done a satellite and realized that, oh, yeah, I didn't keep any of these players. Like, none of these players made it to the end of the year on my roster. So, like, there's a there's like the first 10 rounds where you really want to have players that are going to stay on your roster all year and, like, have high floors. But then there's a moment where you can start taking chances because um, you, the likelihood that players on your roster all year changes. So that's a it's sort of a, a an idea of risk and ceiling and, and floor you kind of start having an idea of ceiling and floor and i think if you wanted to get to the main event you almost want to have your own values you don't want anybody to be able to play along and know what your values are and you know have a sheet open that's just the fan grass auction calendar like oh you know going to take this guy next you know um and then you really want to know every depth chart down to the bones that's why draft and hold can actually help you play main event because you'll know all the players, you know, you'll, you'll be com- like, you might think, you know, think about that, combining that idea of risk and reward and um, your knowledge of the depth charts from the, from the, from the draft and holds. And you might be able to like, Justin Henry Malloy is going to make the roster from opening day. Like you, you, you have a, you, you start making decisions like that. And you'll be like, I think he's just going to make the roster from opening day. And then you can take Justin Henry Malloy as your first bench pick or utility guy in main event, you know, and take and make your shot and be like, that guy I think is just going to be there all year and hit me 25 homers and I didn't spend much money on him, you know? So you're going to have to have your own set of values, basically your own set of risk and reward and knowledge of how the, the, the drafts go in terms of when people do what. Um, and so that's why it's sort of built this way where you can do draft and hold, you can do the satellites and you can build your way up to the main event. Right. Yeah. You don't have to take the plunge all the way to the the higher stakes end of the pool. You could start much, much smaller if you want to and learn more about the the machinations of a game that size. I think that's the highly recommended route if you're thinking about joining NFBC leagues for the first time this year or fan tracks leagues or anything that's deeper and more competitive than what you're accustomed to. You mentioned the auction calculator. We talk about it a lot. I mean, if you've been listening to the show for more than just this episode, You've probably heard us talk about it before. The auction calculator is a great tool to use just to get player dollar values for the type of league you're playing in. And the best thing about it is there are multiple projection sets over at Fangraphs. You can choose the projection sets that you want and actually run it and get those numbers. And it gives you a better sense of which player you want at various points. It gives you a sense of what the positions are shaped like as well, too. As you kind of go through each tab, you look at groups of players, you see, oh, there are plenty of second basemen that are $10 players or more, but when I look at, let's say, third base, it actually tails off a little quicker, or you know, outfield isn't as deep as I thought because there are fewer players than, than I want 
above a certain threshold, right? So you can get a good sense for what you might need to prioritize in the early and middle rounds of your draft and where you can wait as you build out a roster. So even if you're not playing in an auction, you hear a say auction calculator, that's a huge part of why we use it. It's just getting a good sense of a player's overall value for the size and type of league that you're playing in. Yeah, it brings you up to speed really quickly. And then, you know, on top of that, as you get more comfortable with the playing pool, as you get better at fantasy baseball, you will start making decisions on top of the auction calculator. So you're not just being like dollar, dollar, done. You know, one of the ways that I see often that I disagree with the auction calculator is playing time. Because the playing time is set by human beings. And if you, Yanni Diaz keeps showing up as like, the sixth best first baseman in fantasy baseball this year. And I'm just like, ah, yes, if you believe, you know, 650 plate appearances or whatever they have in there. So you can start to then be like, okay. And and you can also use that where you're like, well, I may not agree with 650, but I do agree he's undervalued. You don't have to take him as the sixth best first baseman when you when you can see the draft room, like when you can see where he sits as the available first baseman, because you're in the draft room, you can sort by available first baseman. You can see there's like eight guys who are drafted ahead of him by ADP. So you can wait a little bit, you know, and you can be like, okay, I'm not going to take uh, who's, who's like after Paul Goldschmidt, because I like him too much. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to use him as an example, but I'm not going to take Anthony Rizzo uh, or I'm not going to take, Jose Breu or Josh Bell, you know, some guys that might be going ahead of him because I think Andy Diaz is worth more. And so I can just take other players and come back to him. Um, a, a note too about how the auction calculator is done. Some people don't love Z scores. So Z scores are the what's behind the auction calculator. What it does is it just takes all the stats in the player pool, uh, the relevant player pool that you've done and sort of looks at the standard deviation um, in, in those stats. And so if you are, uh, Asturia Ruiz, you are, you know, X amount of standard deviations above in stolen bases. And those are Z scores. So the, each one is like, you get three Z scores cause you're the three standard deviations above, you know, so you get a, a three in that category, but you're, you know, two standard deviations below, below in home runs, you know, so you get a minus two in that one. And it adds up the value. What I like about that is it's agnostic of who was in the league, how the league was played. You can put the settings in so it knows the settings of the league, but it just looks at the numbers in the thing and says, okay, these are how the numbers are shaped and this is the value of these players. Um, And so I like that to some extent. Now, there's another kind of a way of doing it, which is called standard gains points. And SGP looks at... um, like the the standings in your league and says this amount of stolen bases was worth this point in the standings so like last year we had 20 you know there was 20 stolen bases between first and second in the league you know so that's worth 20 stolen bases and you do that over and over again you'd be like 20 stolen bases worth one standing point so then if Estrella Ruiz you know steals you six bases it's plus you know it's plus 12 you know whatever um, that's better, I think, in leagues where the same people have been playing and the same strategies have been used. And you can really say this is, well, I don't think SGP is that good when the league is changing the rules every year, you know? 
And I also think that STP is not that, because if you think about it, like if you did stolen base standing, if you were doing standing gains points from 2022 to 2023 on stolen bases, you'd be totally off. Right, because the run environment changed. The run environment truly changed. But even if you made an adjustment for that, on top of that, I don't think standing gains points is a good way to identify different strategies that you can use to win. Now I'm talking sort of main event type strategy. So <laughs> if you use Z-scores, you can. it might tell you to punt saves, right? You could ignore that. You can tweak standard you can tweak your z scores a little bit and be like no make stone bases worth a little bit more you know you can do something like that if you're doing your own values you can react to it but it might tell you to punt stolen bases it says punt saves maybe that's the right way you know and i think there's a lot of groupthink in main event think about how starting pitchers have been drafted they just keep getting drafted higher and higher and higher you know and um you know, maybe like, yeah, you can look at, this is our draft and hold league. And, um, you know, this is actually not a great example because we only have one first round starting pitcher uh, in Strider, but look at all the yellow in second in the second and third rounds. And there's a sort of, you know, I have to get an ace. And so you, you get this, I'm going to get a bat and then I'm going to get a pitcher in the second or third round. And you can see just by the coloring right now, you can see all the yellow in the second and third rounds. And uh, there were other times in the history of NFBC where that yellow would start in the fourth and fifth rounds. When I started drafting in Yahoo in 2002, I started drafting pitchers in the ninth and 10th rounds, you know? Um, so there's been this general inflation if you do Z scores, it might tell you, don't do that. You know, I'm looking at the numbers. The Z score says, I'm looking at the numbers and, you know, this pitcher is not worth this batter. You should take the batter. Um, it's, I think it's valuable to know that. Standing gains points will just tell you, given all the strategies that people implemented last year, you know, given the ways people played in this league last year, this is what you should do. See, I kind of, I'm kind of a Z score guy. <laughs> well, I also, I have thought more about standings gain points in season when I'm trying to catch somebody. Like, where can I actually do the most damage categorically? Which categories are bunched up more? Yeah. You know, what should I be trading for? What should I be comfortable trading away? In order then you to make know who you're playing against and what strategies other people are doing and what the standings actually look like, right? You're not comparing it to some other satellite league that was played last year by other people. You know what I mean? I think Z-scores are just kind of agnostic of, of some of the that con context in a good way. So 2024 is unique. Every season's unique. And we're, we're projecting the future right now. We're trying to guess what the season's going to be like. We look back at previous seasons and we go, oh, 2023 was different because steals were easier to find. And aces that could strike guys out were more valuable because it was harder to post great ratios, right? There were certain characteristics that made players more valuable. And thinking about just the draft and hold board that was on the screen and how we don't, at least at this point in draft season, when it is more of that format and less like the main event where you have the in-season moves, I'm starting to wonder if there's a an opportunity with Spencer Strider in particular. Like if you're in drafting in the first round this year, everyone's going to have a first round pick in a snake draft. If you're in the early part of the order, one of those first four or five teams in a 15-team league, let's say, there seems to be this consensus of five hitters going first and then Strider usually going sixth. Sometimes someone pushes Strider up. I actually think pushing Strider up earlier into that order is the smart play 
because of the way everybody else wants to build their teams. And I think part of the reason I think this is if you look at the gap between Spencer Strider as the best projected pitcher versus anybody who's projected next, whether it's Garrett Cole, Corbin Burns, Castillo, Kirby, whoever, doesn't matter who it is. That's a big gap similar to the gap from Ronald Acuna, who's the consensus number one overall player, to Julio Rodriguez or Bobby Witt Jr. or Corbin Carroll or Mookie Betts, right? There's this massive gap this year. And for the handful of early auctions that have happened, we're seeing numbers on Acuna and redraft above 60 out of a $260 budget. That doesn't usually happen. That's something that happens in a keeper league where there's a lot of inflation. Like peak Mike Trout was like 40 and 50. Right. Because the projections we're seeing on Acuna coming off of the season he just had are just absurd. So I think Acuna is the consensus 1-1. I'm not fighting anybody on that. But I do wonder if people are overlooking the possible edge of taking Strider if they have that second pick. Because we had a few people ask us, what would you do if you had the second pick? And I think you can argue five or six different hitters in that spot. But the more I think about it, the more I'm tempted to say Strider might be the optimal play for this year. Yeah, it's interesting that there's a Z-score argument, man. The Z-score argument is that Strider is worth more than Julio Rodriguez. Straight up. $35, you know? And so uh, I think that it's at least an interesting idea that you should put kick around uh, as a drafter, and and then the nice thing is you know as you get more advanced you can kind of you can uh, do a league where you try it before you do the main event. You know you can do a satellite or uh, you know that's what these 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 sharks are doing. They they've got you know fifty leagues. You know they're just doing it over and over again. They're trying different strategies time to see how it goes out. You can uh, even if you don't want to spend all that money. You can look at the ADP board and be like, okay, if I took Strider second, what would happen to me? What would be available to me on the way back? I'm looking at a draft champions league where Bobby went, went second. He went Luis Castillo, George Kirby, second and third. What was available to him at that time? He could have done uh, Vlad Guerrero and Bo Bichette. Uh, if he'd gotten lucky, he might have been able to take Michael Harris uh, and, and Bo Bichette. Well, that's actually pretty interesting. A Michael Harris and Bo Bichette combination would still give you a lot of power and speed and batting average you know you may be off a little bit and runs an rbi from you know your rodriguez or wit uh, but you wouldn't be that far off in terms of batting average homers and stolen bases and you would have the best starting pitcher in the in the in in by by projections in the big leagues so you know there's uh there's certain you know that's why I like Z scores. It it it, it unearths different strategies. It, it it kind of shows you different things. I think standard gains points is too much. Like this is how you won last year, and that's a that's a thing that can happen too, with um, looking at what happened last year and being like, okay, um, I'm I'm making benchmarks. So in the main event last year, in order to get uh, 12 points in each category, I have to do this, 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 and this, and this, right? And that's a good idea. You should do that. Um, but again, the league environment's going to change again. So last year, uh, in draft and holds 160, 165 steals was good enough to get into the top end for, for steals, right? That's more than the year before. And I believe it's going to be even more this year, because if you look at stolen base success rates, especially on third base, they're 85% and stolen base success rates over over the entire league were 80%. What happens traditionally when your stolen base success rate is so far above the break-even point, which is like 70 to 75, 
is you keep stealing until you get closer to that break-even point. It's like, uh, why not? You know, like it's free money, you know? So if there's more stolen bases next year, then you really have to think, well, am I just going to stick with, and main events, you had to get 180 to get in the top. Are you just going to, are you going to say, well, I'm just going to get 160 and be good everywhere else and just get five points or six points? Or I do I have to budget for 200 steals in this draft you know uh so you have to think about those things so that's a that's a way of kind of taking some of that standard gains points idea which is what happened in these leagues before you can do that if you have that if you're doing nfc you can do it on fan tracks you can do it in a lot of places it's a little bit harder on like a yahoo if you're just playing you know but you can do it in your own league if you're just playing one league with a bunch of players you can just look back the last couple of years and just what was good enough you can combine that with Z-scores and then you start to see some cool, you know, synergies of strategy, right? Okay, I needed this many stolen bases, but they're only worth this much in the auction calculator. Does that mean I need to, you know, just value them over what my auction calculator says? You know, do I just need to take stolen base guys higher than the auction calculator says? Or do I take this approach where I'm like, I'm fine with five or six points in that category. I'm fine with just being middle of the pack in stolen bases not non-zero and dominating everywhere else, you know, by using the Z-score strategy. Yeah, and uh, my brain says my optimal approach is to not pay a premium for steals right now, to not worry about that early, to make sure that I'm more dominant in the power category, right? And 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 and, and batting average, like it's silly. I know people are saying you're an advanced stats baseball show. Why do you care so much about batting? You got to keep batting average high. It's it's you got to keep it high. It's the easiest thing to like. It's the easiest thing to punt, but it's co-correlated with, and that's another thing you have to think about. When you punt one thing, what is it? What is what are you punting along with it? And if I think you you're giving up homers. Less. Never punt homers. No, because then you can't. you're punting RBI and runs, and then you're punting three categories. You can't win. I think you're giving up less if you wait a little bit on steals. It doesn't mean you don't draft any early, right? Depending on who your early round picks are, you may just get some. You may get thirty steals from one or two different players that you take in the first three or four rounds. That might just happen that way. I wouldn't panic if I didn't have it because I think you're right that I think teams are going to be more aggressive. They're going to see, oh, we did this and it worked fine and this is still good success rate for us. So even the guys you're counting on for 10 might just get 15 next year. You might just get inflation across the board in the category. So some of it might kind of take care of itself, but the other part of it is saying, well, you know, maybe maybe I can just find more of this a little bit later on because new players entering the pool are going to be able to offer this. There are maybe some guys that don't hit for a lot of power available late that will run even more than they did last year because they're going to realize, hey, I could add more value to my team than I have ever before. I could keep taking off. And it was easier than I thought last year. And they've been planning on it. They've been working yeah, on that part Ruiz of the game. have like 120, you know? Like, <laughs> we used to do that. And well, yeah, like, we used to have people like that. Vince Coleman, like Ricky Anderson. So I think that's part of what I'm adjusting. I'm, I'm worrying less about how much speed I have in the first three, four, five hitters on my roster and knowing I'll, I'll find enough over the bottom half of the roster or the bottom two thirds of my core of hitters. I think that's the, that's like the slight tweak at the top. The other part is, you know, you were talking about hitters you could pair with Spencer Strider. I think you're pairing another pitcher with him. I think you're just double tapping with pitching just because you, you, you have that edge with the strikeouts right away from Strider. I think you want to try and push it with ratios too. I think you want to back it up and, and possibly go two or three starters. Oh my God, Strider, Castillo, Kirby to start. 
I'm not advocating for that just yet. I'm thinking about it, but I think you should be strongly considering a second pitcher with your second and third round picks behind Strider this year. All these, all these rules are pushing offense, Mm -hmm. you know, which just means there's more and more offense available everywhere. And it does make the top end pitchers more valuable. The other thing that I'm finding is, um, especially in draft and holds, was that at, at some point last year in my draft and holds, I would have one choice to make in my pitching staff. There's, there's, do you know that the the, the average um, injured list chance for a starting pitcher is 40%? 40% of just an IL stint. Yeah. Of some kind, even if it's yeah. a minor injury. And they, and then we know that pitchers, you know, stay on the IL longer than hitters. And, you know, the, the chance of a drastic injury, i.e. like Tommy John or, or the shoulder is, is higher. Yep. So, um, so what I'm doing a little bit more of this year is concentrating on buying innings. And that goes a little counter to the strider approach. I think it's, it's, an, it's an option on the other side of the strider approach, which is just, let me just have a lot of credible options. You know, because there's going to be, if I get more choices on my roster of more credible starting pitchers on my roster that are going to be in a rotation, I will get Patrick Sandoval in Oakland. You know what I mean? I'll have that choice and that'll probably still be a good choice and be better than not having that choice. So in that same, you know, uh, league that I showed earlier, uh, you know, the bottom of my uh, of my roster in terms of uh, starting pitchers, um, you know, I've got, let me find me here. Uh, I've got uh, uh, Patrick Sandoval, Matt Manning, Joe Boyle, JP France, uh, Paul Blackburn, um, you know, Spencer Turnbull hasn't signed yet, but, uh, and I also started doing some relievers that I know would play. So I'd have an option where at least, in one week, I'd be looking at Giovanni Gallegos, not as a closer, but as a pitcher who will pitch this year and maybe win win a game or, or save a game uh, versus Paul Blackburn. Maybe this week he's at home, you know, versus Patrick Sandoval. I don't want these. You know, I want to have options. I want to have guys who I want to have innings on my roster that I have options that I can choose between. And so injury risk is something that is hard to project but is something that I want to think about because I want guys that I think are going to be healthy and give me choices this year. Yeah, I think in in draft and hold and mono leagues especially, those are the formats where my risk tolerance goes down. And I, I take some injury risk on because I think in I think there are instances in which we overestimate injury risk and I try to buy in those opportunities. An example for me is Tyler Glass now. I think people price Tyler Glass now in their minds as though 160 innings are just impossible and it's not impossible Mm -hmm. it might be less likely than other pitchers in the range but only by a relatively small margin because as you just said 40 percent of the pitcher pool ends up on the IL at some point (laughs) and a lot of those injuries are significant injuries so Mm. I tend to lean into some pitchers like that even in those formats but the the depth options, especially, I try to make sure I've got as much coverage as possible. Playing time becomes so important in those deeper leagues because your replacement level in a mono league is really low. It's hard to find anybody who's good on the wire. Sometimes it's even hard to find someone who's playing in an AL only or an NL only league. Draft and hold, you don't even get to make a move. So every time you lose a player for the season, 
fewer and fewer options, right? You might be taking on a lot of extra water with those ratios, having to play someone you don't really like skills-wise or having to throw someone out there that doesn't even necessarily have a role. All of those things really start to hurt you if you don't build your depth up correctly in those formats. Yeah, and one other thing I noticed in, in draft and hold, uh, just because I've done more of those so far this year than others, is um, that if you don't take uh, players with multi-eligibility early on, um, you can fill your roster, but your options are worse, you know? And uh, what what I did with taking Haseon Kim is just make sure that, uh, and Tyro Estrada especially, is like, make sure that at shortstop, third, and second, I probably have a good option every week, you know? Um, you know, and so if I, when I did another draft after that where I didn't have as many multi-eligibles and like Jake Cronenworth is like my only multi-eligible and that, I think that's a good example. It's like, okay, well in that league, um, you know, I may end up playing Jake Cronenworth a lot. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and you know, it made me use more, more bodies to fill the same slots and gave me less flexibility at the end of the draft you know where i had to just i had to take a guy because he was the last shortstop left or you know i had to take a guy because he was the last guy who was going to play third base this year (laughs) whereas when you when you start taking multiple eligibles early on you keep yourself flexible for way more in the end of the draft like you know what i don't need a third baseman i'll just count kassian kim as one of my third basemen you know and i'll take uh you know, somebody else. And that, that allowed me to take Malloy and Jordan Diaz as my the worst players on my team because I had more flexibility. Whereas my other team, I think there are more worse players at the end. <laughs> so hopefully that was instructive, helpful, thoughtful in some way. It was a lot of a lot of information from a lot of different corners. I think it's a little bit of a why is fantasy baseball less popular than fantasy football? I feel like a lot of the explaining we just had to do the lack of consistency from format to format and i realize like every fantasy sport has different wrinkles and scoring rules and you change the league sizes a bit but i just feel like baseball has more variation than any other fantasy sport by a healthy margin plus it's it's so long i mean that's why i I think you should have a if you're gonna have multiple leagues i think you should have a mix between weekly and daily because just having a ton of daily lineup leagues is is exhausting. And yeah. so for me, I, I I try to keep the daily lineup leagues to a minimum. So I'm only setting two or three lineups a night, even if I have 12 leagues. So I actually have a little bit more balance towards weekly because at least Sunday I can just, you know, carve out an hour and sit down, do free agency, do lineups, you know, that sort of thing. Right. And I think that's where a lot of the strong cases for the draft and hold format originated and and best ball where it's like you can do more drafts, you can do more prep, you can use that for the leagues that are higher stakes or more important to you as as ways to learn the player pool. You don't get the big pile of in-season maintenance quite the same way. So I do think that's a really important consideration as well. Know how much time you have available before you commit to leagues with moves. And limiting your leagues can be a big deal. So last year in our in our main event, um, we were like 740th out of 780 main event teams at one point. So we were the very bottom of the very bottom. Oof. We ended up uh, cashing out in that league and getting third place just because we examined the player pool every week and we went back and forth about who we should pick up and we were very uh we were very we made a like a lot of strong decisions like you were saying about like where can we make moves with what strategy let's stream 
you know, pitchers and give up ERA. And we gave up ERA in like May, you know? Right. And that, that gave us a very big advantage in terms of streaming for strikeouts because we didn't care about ERA anymore. <laughs> you know? So, um, you know, there's, uh, there's uh, you know, the, the fewer leagues you have that have the same, same sort of pain points, uh, it's probably a good idea because then you can really sort of focus on what you're doing. Yeah, strongly recommend that as uh, one way to make sure that you're actually set up to have a great season. You can end up overwhelming yourself if you fail to do that. If you're looking for some information, some tools, rankings, all sorts of things that can help you, theathletic.com slash rates and barrels will get you a subscription. If you're a new subscriber to The Athletic, it's $2 a month for the first year. It's one of the best deals that we run throughout the year, so be sure to sign up for that if you haven't done so already. If you've got a question for a future episode, ratesandbarrels at gmail.com is the best way to reach us with those. We'll get to some mailbag questions here in the next week or so. We're always keeping an eye on it and using it for topic ideas, but maybe more specific mailbag episodes are on the horizon. You can find Eno on Twitter at Eno Saris. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. You can find the pod at Rates and Barrels. That's going to do it for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We're back with you on Monday. Thanks for listening. 